Hi, this is a kind of special um, extra, extra kind of introductory piece that I am recording. And um, as I'm going to talk about kind of later in the main introduction, this particular episode has sort of been through a bunch of different kind of iterations. I think this is kind of the, fir the fourth um, version of this particular episode, essentially. Um, but anyway, the, the idea being that I've, I've done a fair bit of kind of tinkering with this particular episode. Um, but I wanted to add just a little bit before I get into the bulk of the episode, which is largely, um, call-ins from my buddy, Jason Connerly and responses from me. Many of the responses are quite long, which makes up the, the bulk of the runtime. There's, you know, 10 or 12 minutes total from Jason. And then the rest is basically all me. Um, anyway, but before we kind of get into all of that, I wanted to do a sort of brief announcement about a couple of things that are available. If you are interested in them specifically, um, Kickstarters for RPGs that are obviously not going to be running forever, but if you are listening right now, um, kind of around the time that the episode releases, uh, they're going to be still running. And I'm going to actually say specifically how long each of these is going for, but it's basically three Kickstarters that I have gone ahead and backed um, and that I thought I would let you guys know about. So the first one um, is the old school essentials fantasy RPG box sets, which is a, a reprint of the uh, OSE content. And there's basically kind of two box sets that you can um, get. One of them is the the classic game set, and one of them is the expansion advanced expansion set, which is um, essentially material that adapts some of the sort of AD and D stuff into um, uh, the, the BX-based format of um, Old School Essentials. And um, these books, historically, the, the Old School Essentials books have been incredibly well-constructed. The, the printer that they use has been um, really professional and has made some really gorgeous books. Um, the layout on them is great. Obviously, the, the PDFs you also get when you back, which is part of why I went ahead and backed because I don't have PDFs of all of the advanced stuff yet. So I figured I would go ahead and do that. Um, so anyway, um, but then also I, I went ahead and went in for the, the, the box set of hard copy books because I feel like worth having in the collection, even if I don't uh, play or run old school essentials that often. I, you know, they're so pretty that I feel like I need them fear of missing out and all that. Um, anyway, the second one is Fragged Empire. Oh, and that has at um, on as of March 3rd, 22 days to go. So as of uh, March 8th, there will be 17 days to go on that Kickstarter. Um, the next one that I backed is Fragged Empire second edition, um, which is uh, Wade Dyer is the sort of guy behind it. And uh, Design Ministries is his company. And um, Fragged Empire is kind of an interesting beast because there was sort of Fragged Empire, the original, and then a number of sort of spinoff games that all sort of took the, the system in different directions. And then now they've sort of are going back to the original kind of Fragged Empire thing and um, doing a, a, you know, more world content and also some kind of 
system cleanup and changes. Um, and apparently it is all compatible with all of the non-Empire Fragged games. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a, a set of games that I enjoy a lot. Um, the core mechanic is kind of interesting. It's a 3D6 um, mechanic, but it's, it's 3D6 plus modifiers versus target number. And then part of the idea is based on what you roll. When you roll sixes, you get kind of special boosts. Um, extra stuff you can do um, a little bit like the way that kind of stunt points work in the age system or something like that. Anyway, that one has, uh, we'll have 22 days to go when you guys get to this episode. So just a wee bit longer um, on that one. And then the last one is uh, Shiver Gothic Classic Horror Reborn, which is by, who's it? Parable Games is the, the, the organization that do it. Um, Shiver is a really interesting, um, it's a generic system, but it is a generic system with a specific um, kind of genre and style design, which is to say that it is a generic system that is designed for kind of horror role-playing in particular. Um, in the way that obviously lots of generic systems have their kind of underlying assumptions, right? Savage Worlds plays in a specific way that is different than GURPS, that is different than Fate, that is different than Champions or Hero System or whatever else. You get what I'm trying to say. Um, and Shiver is uh, really cool. It's not a, a super complicated system based on what I've seen of it. I have the, uh, the core book, um, but then this is a sort of expansion for... Um, gothic stuff and there's basically kind of two books that they're working on one that is sort of the main city and one kind of expansion on that that's kind of the 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 undercity people living in the sewers in this gothic city type thing um and it looks really cool and um seems like the sort of thing that some people might be interested in and it's another thing that i myself have backed so i feel comfortable you know basically uh shilling it for you guys, having backed it myself. Um, and that one will have 23 days to go by the time this episode is released. So um, uh, basically a, a collection of kind of Kickstarter related things. And then obviously part of the, the reason for telling you guys about this stuff is specifically that, um, you know, if you uh, often, if you can kind of work it out right, uh, backing uh, Kickstarters for these various um, games can get a pretty good deal on either the, the kind of main material that the Kickstarter's for, or sometimes the sort of other material that the, the company has that they're offering as like cheaper add-ons and stuff. Um, so for instance, for the fragged one, there's, I think it's like $110. Um, it's in, it's in uh, Australian dollars is the thing. So it's not, um, easy, not quite convert off the head for me, but, um, basically $110 for everything fragged first edition in PDF, which is a pretty good deal considering the amount of stuff that they have for first edition, uh, fragged and all of the kind of other versions. So there's, there's fragged kingdom, which is fantasy and fragged seas, which is pirates and fragged Eternum, which is sort of dark soulsy bloodborne style stuff. And then there's a, a diesel punk mecha game and a cyberpunk game and basically a whole bunch of different kind of versions of this kind of core system. And um, if you kind of work it out right, you can, uh, if, especially if you don't, I already have just about everything they have 
produced in PDF. So it doesn't make as much sense for me, but for somebody who wants to get into those games, it would be obviously a really good deal for all of that material in PDF to, to just you know, get a, a ton of stuff. So anyway, I thought I would do that. I'm hoping that you guys didn't get too much background noise on this little bit because I, I can hear a bit of uh, noise coming from the neighboring apartment and dogs barking and stuff. So hopefully you guys didn't get too much of that. And if you did, it didn't bother you too much. But anyway, that's a sort of uh, Kickstarter alert, I guess, to, to say that there's a couple of things that are kind of out there and available and might be worth looking into if you have similar taste in games to me. Anyway, um, let's get into the main episode. Hi, I'm Marlon Walker and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland and today I've got another episode of the podcast for you guys. Um, I'm trying to be a little bit quiet right now because it's only about 7.30 a.m., um, and I'm, you know, at my desk in my apartment, so I, you know, don't want to make too much noise and, you know, uh, disturb my uh, neighbors in my apartment complex. Um, you know, 7.30 obviously is not uh, insanely early, but it is, I think, uh, a fair bit earlier than especially one of my neighbors actually wakes up. Um, and then the other thing is that this particular episode has um, sort of gone through... Um, I think this current version is sort of the third uh, uh, round of work I've done on it, essentially, um, that it's gone through kind of a couple of different uh, versions, if that makes sense, um, which is one of the real benefits of, you know, prepping ahead of time, basically, is that you have time to do, you know, excuse me, editing and, and version stuff. And I haven't done any like audio editing in the sense of, you know, cleaning up my responses or anything, but I have been sort of going through a couple times and sort of tinkering with what I might want to put in this episode and all that. So anyway, um, in earlier versions, there was sort of more um, of my kind of sort of classic solo rambles, I guess you might say. Um, but I have enough call-ins now that I feel like I should do kind of a just call-in show. And it's just about all um, Jason Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, who is, uh, of course, a great friend of mine and uh, uh, wonderful that he has called in so much. And then also, I think the plan is that um, probably the next episode that you guys see will be something that we have not recorded yet, but that will be recorded by the time this episode comes out, which is a uh, chat between me and Jason about a recent episode of his podcast, um, or, or sort of inspired by a recent episode of his podcast, his episode 320, which is not the 320th episode of his podcast, because he's got a number of uh, un, unlabeled kind of uh, with numbers episodes, um, but his episode from March 1st of 2022, 320, is... Um, the, the episode where he plays the responses that he got for his uh, February contest, which involved basically um, asking people to call in with their three favorite RPGs and a little explanation as to why. 
Um, and it was a, a, a great fun thing to do. I did not win the contest, unfortunately, which makes me sad, but that's okay. Um, I think it's all right and uh, I'll be all right. I, you know, anyway, the, the point being that um, I ended up kind of calling in a bunch on my phone and not realizing that my new earbuds for my phone have an inline microphone, which was what was being used instead of the, the kind of phone microphone. And um, therefore the audio is not great. And it has the kind of noise of, you know, the microphone rubbing against my shirt as I'm walking the dog and all that. And we, I, Jason said that he thought it would still be okay to play them, but I sort of said that I thought that the, the audio quality was really bad and I didn't necessarily um, feel like it was up to my standards, if that makes sense. And so what we decided to do was to do a sort of um, hangout and chat, the two of us, um, and the plan is to do that in a couple days from now for me, um, but a couple days ago from you guys, essentially, and um, just sort of chat about the the contest and the, the choices and some of the kind of interesting things that came up and all of that sort of stuff. So I think that's going to be really fun. And I think that's going to be episode 3.19. Um the a season three episode 19 essentially of this podcast and then i will probably send the audio to jason if he wants it and he can do whatever he wants with that audio and all of that sort of stuff or he may just link to my podcast or whatever but anyway all of that is to say that we have a ton of calls from jason because i've kind of let them build up over um a significant period of time. Most of my responses are on the shorter side, but there's one kind of really big response talking specifically about kind of James Bond stuff um, in the middle. So it's a, a fair bit of me content mixed in with the Jason calls. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be, I think it's a, a fun episode. So I hope you guys enjoy Hey Arlen, catching up on episode 315 and or 3.15, I don't know the right way to say that. But I paused it to, to call you mentioned Twine or or whatever the story writing software, word processing software, and I could definitely see where the branching, like you know, where you're working on the drop-down menus or the branching parts would detract from the writing the story part, as opposed to sitting down in front of a just a basic word processor or even a typewriter or even pen and pencil, right? And just just going, just writing. So, yeah, I think if I, I know I can't speak for you, but I can only speak for me, but I easily get distracted or I'll mess around with that stuff. Like when I was writing term papers, I'd waste so much time with footnotes and doing the margins and all that instead of actually just writing the paper, you know, so sometimes you just have to write. Yeah, I, uh, I totally agree, Jason. I really like the idea of writing something that has that kind of branching story element, uh, not even necessarily a whole lot of what we might describe as kind of player agency necessarily, but just uh, a sort of sense of like that there's kind of more to explore then can be gotten on like one kind of read through or, or play through depending on your terminology. Um, 
I don't, I, I think people get kind of caught up in the idea of like, you know, games, especially with video games, having like, you know, different distinct endings that reflect your choices. And I think sometimes people get really um, sort of wrapped up in that and that that can be uh, to the detriment of the games in particular, um, not because having distinct endings is uh, necessarily a bad thing, but because I think they get sort of wrapped up on the idea of, you know, choices mattering based on what the kind of uh, writer or designer thought of them mattering versus choices mattering to the player, if that makes sense, that I think there's a lot of value in sort of um, decisions that don't necessarily kind of change like the larger story but that are something that kind of the player decides is important, if that makes sense, um, which is kind of an, uh, I'm trying to think of a better way to, to put that in some ways. But I think in particular of some of the sort of more sandbox games that I have played and enjoyed a lot, um, in particular, I'm of the opinion that the uh, Crusader Kings video game series, I didn't play the first one ever. I might have it on Steam, but I don't know. Um, for certain, but I, I played a lot of two and then now three is out and I've played not quite as much of that, but I played a fair bit of it. And um, there isn't really any kind of pre-written story for the most part. There, there are kind of sections with sort of pre-written story elements and there's sort of pre-written story pieces, but there's no kind of like overarching pre-written story for the whole span of the game. But there is a kind of wonderful way in which story gets created by interacting with the mechanics, if that makes sense. And I, I think that's really cool. Um, and I think people kind of do it a, a disservice on some level by acting like, well, because, you know, your decisions don't necessarily, basically that if the game doesn't kind of say, hey, that decision was important, that that means that that decision wasn't important. And I don't think that's true. I think that there's a lot of kind of, you know, especially if you think about kind of, you know, great literature, there are a number of, you know, really important, you know, decisions or sequences or thematic elements that are not based on kind of a, a particularly significant plot shift, but that are, you know, very deeply significant for the character and things like that. So it's a, it's a whole thing anyway. Um, and I would kind of like to tap into that, but I also totally agree that it seems like it would be really easy to get sort of caught up in that element and not actually be kind of, you know, producing text essentially. So I am I'm doing a little better of getting sort of into that habit. I've been been writing uh, a little bit um, and I am hoping to sometime this afternoon do a little bit more and um, just try to, you know, build up that habit type thing. Um, but we'll see. So uh, I will keep you guys updated on what I end up uh, deciding or doing or whatever else. Arlen, I love you, but Sean Connery is James Bond. I don't know what those Daniel Craig things were. Casino Royale was a parody of James Bond movies made with David Niven starring in it. Um, Ursula Anders also appears in that. But what, what else do we have? Um, so if you want the more quote-unquote gritty James Bond, which you get with Sean Connery, but it, but if you want a more modern take of that, I I really like what Timothy Dalton did in the two his two movies. I, I really liked Timothy Dalton's take on the character. 
enjoyed that a lot. I know he caught a lot of crap, but, you know, they tried to make it gritty with Timothy Dalton. It didn't take, but then they did it with Daniel Craig, and it did. And, um, well, we, we, we all know Timothy Dalton's a better actor than Daniel Craig, so I'm not sure why that happened. But anyhow, let me list the rest of your show. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that this set of comments comes after Jason heard my own comments about Timothy Dalton's version of James Bond. Um, I have not watched, so there's there's two of them. One of them is called License to Kill. I can't remember the name of the other one that are Timothy Dalton as James Bond. Um, and I don't think I've seen the other one, but I know I've seen License to Kill. It's been a while, um, but for anyone who missed when I talked about it, um, in, in my opinion, what I remember of License to Kill was that after 15 or 20 minutes, I felt like it was basically unwatchable, that it was just terrible. And um, anyway, so I think Jason is mostly pulling my leg, but he might be serious, in which case, I guess maybe I'll watch the Timothy Dalton James Bonds again. Who knows? I'll, I'll decide. Maybe I'll put them on the tablet one night and just sort of, you know, if they turn out to be terrible... Um, I'll, you know, stop after 20 or 30 minutes, but anyway, um, I actually, so I really like, I definitely really like the Sean Connery, James Bond a lot. I have a, a, a real strong love for the different, um, Sean Connery, uh, film versions of James Bond. Um, I will also add that the, the parody version of Casino Royale, the kind of original Casino Royale movie that for anybody who doesn't know is a sort of, uh, parody of James Bond that came out like in the sixties or seventies, um, also has, um, what's his name? Um, Citizen Kane, Orson Welles as um, the the villain, which I thought was pretty cool when I found that out because I really like Orson Welles, um, not just for kind of his own stuff, although his own stuff is pretty great, but also for kind of some of the other stuff that he was in. Um, so obviously Susan Kane is sort of the most famous thing that he did. And then there's a couple of others that he um, did. I can't remember the name of the, the one where they reshot the ending that was around the same time. Um, but, um, and then he also did um, the chimes at midnight, which is sort of a strange thing. Cause he kind of never finished it, but it has been sort of put together in the aftermath as a sort of actual film um, that is Orson Welles as Jack Falstaff. Um, and it's great. And then F for fake is also really good. And then of course, one of my absolute favorite films is the third man, which is, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to spoil the third man. So, uh, if you guys have not seen it, you should watch it. But Orson Welles plays a, a character who, um, is the, the best friend of the sort of, uh, protagonist and who, when the protagonist arrives in post-war Vienna, believes that he is dead, but it turns out Orson Welles is not as dead as uh, suppose, as he was supposed to be. And in particular, there's a, a, a magnificent sequence that takes place on a Ferris wheel where the two of them are sort of chatting on this Ferris wheel as it goes through sort of one circuit, and Orson Welles just completely steals the scene and he's so good and so much fun to watch. And I just, you know, wish that he had made more movies basically and hadn't been pretty much, uh, blacklisted, uh, 
by the the academy in some ways um but anyway that's a whole another thing he also i will add orson wells is the voice of unicron in transformers the animated film um the the film version the 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 first transformers film that was made um as a film from the animated tv show he's the voice of the sort of um boss villain unicron who is like a, a a death star transformer right he's like a a transformer so big that he transforms into a planet and it's awesome and wild and apparently it's sort of similar to um alec guinness's comments on um playing obi-wan that he you know felt like it was you know very silly and ridiculous and not really um a reflection of his kind of you know caliber as an actor but also that it's something that you know the people who were sort of introduced to that actor through that particular role have a, a great fondness for in many ways so anyway as far as the the james bond goes i part of the reason i really like the daniel craig james bond and particularly casino royale i um i saw quantum of solace in theaters and i remember very little of it except that i did not think it was very good um uh Skyfall, I think, is a good, a really good uh, James Bond movie in a lot of ways. Um, although I don't think it's quite as good as Casino Royale in some ways. And then Spectre, I think I saw, but similar. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I saw it um, after it had come to, uh, you know, uh, streaming services or something and that I thought it was not very good and similar to quantum of solace. I don't remember very much of it. And then most recently I saw no time to die, which is the, the last Daniel Craig, James Bond film. And I thought it was also not good. And um, to be fair, I think, you know, two out of five of the movies being good, it makes Daniel Craig one of the better James Bonds in some ways in terms of the the kind of scoring, if we're going to, you know, score the movies that way that, um, you know, Sean Connery and, um, well, I think that uh, Sean Connery is perhaps the only James Bond with a, a significantly better kind of high score in terms of a percentage of good movies. But anyway, the point being um, part of what I really like about Casino Royale is the way it to me is sort of the uh, one of the best versions of a sort of um, kind of soft reboot sequel series concept that um, utilizes the kind of earlier material in a way that both kind of expands upon the kind of earlier stuff and the newer stuff that I sort of see it as there's, there's kind of um, a whole number of different kind of versions of the way that kind of soft rebooty or sequel series stuff goes. And there's kind of um, basically there's a sort of tier that is, you know, kind of wipe the slate clean almost that is very little relationship to the original um, and then there's a sort of uh, another tier that is, as I see it, kind of a, a blend that there's basically sort of two versions. There's kind of homage and parody almost, and, and they sort of blend together sometimes in interesting ways and sometimes are very separate. But that, you know, parody is sort of commenting on the original and making fun of it. And homage is sort of commenting on the original 
and really kind of highlighting what people loved about it, but that both of those don't really offer a whole lot of kind of that basically the the new thing doesn't really have a lot of kind of reason to exist beyond the existence of the old thing, if that makes sense. That um, that you know it'll be like a new movie in a particular series or a franchise or something that basically exists to comment on the old stuff, but doesn't really have a lot of kind of value on its own. If that makes sense, I'm, I'm trying to think of a better way to phrase it, and then the sort of higher tier than that is a sort of commentary where both the kind of old older material and the newer material are kind of enriched by the existence of this newer material in a way that allows us to kind of have new perspectives on the old material as well as having this kind of interesting and and worthy sort of new material and to me that's sort of what casino royale does in a way that a lot of the other um various kind of soft reboots or franchise restarters or whatever so i'm thinking of for instance like the uh jurassic world series or the 2016 ghostbusters and then there was a new ghostbusters that was like ghostbusters aftermath or something and i i don't saw very little material about that, but also things like the uh, Disney Star Wars uh, sequel trilogy and uh, even to some degree kind of, well, basically a whole bunch of, of that sort of stuff. You, you kind of get what I'm talking about. I suspect that to me, Casino Royale is just about the best version of that kind of concept because I think it is by itself a really excellent movie but that it also uh, is a really excellent kind of commentary on the older material in very clever ways, um, which is to say that I, I enjoy the grittiness to some degree. And I uh, appreciate that there's definitely, especially in the Sean Connery bond, it seems like they got kind of less gritty for a while in kind of in between Sean Connery and Daniel Craig, that is it kind of as the series grew, it got, uh, almost sanitized to some degree, it seems like, um, as James Bond became a little more kind of family friendly, almost, I guess, it seems like, um, that, that sort of the early Sean Connery stuff where they were still kind of experimenting with bringing that character to the screen has a little bit more of that roughness in the same way that for instance, like the first Iron Man movie has some kind of bits and pieces that it seems like Marvel has done their best to, uh, distance themselves from in particular, the fact that, um, Iron Man flies to Afghanistan to fight terrorists in Iron Man 1, which is kind of wild when you compare it to the more recent Marvel movies that have been uh, pretty seriously apolitical on that sort of front. Um, by comparison, that, um, you know, about the most political they get is that there are uh, apparently fairly big fans of the UN in a couple of the later movies. And I think that's a little silly because I think the UN is a little silly which is to say that the UN is sort of a noble ideal that doesn't really ever live up to that but anyway that's sort of other stuff but basically what I'm saying is that I think part of what I really love about the Daniel Craig movies is the way that they exist in relation to the other James Bond movies and the way that there's this kind of wonderful kind of blend of things that it's you know it's sort of uh 
And the grittiness is definitely part of that, this idea of James Bond as this kind of suave killer type really kind of, I think, was brought back into uh, the, the sort of front with the Daniel Craig series that was sort of present in the Sean Connery stuff and then fell out of favor to some degree. Um, and then there's some of the other, like one of the things that I thought was really dumb about No Time to Die was that there's basically no reason for it to be James Bond who does a lot of this stuff that, you know, a um, what's the... SAS, right, is the British Special Forces team, um, kind of an equivalent to something like SEAL Team 6 for the U.S. Um, but the, there's a, a whole number of sequences that basically could have been them because it doesn't really depend on having this kind of, you know, suave killer type that is the nature of James Bond. Whereas in Casino Royale, like part of the whole point is that they are trying to, you know, win the poker game without shooting anybody so that they can, you know, capture Le Chief and give, get him to give up information about the organization. Um, and that that's, you know, a much better kind of use of the James Bond concept, if that makes sense. And anyway, the point being, and there's a number of, I mentioned before um, in one of the, the episodes where I talked about it, the, um, especially one of the lines that I really love is when James Bond has, uh, I'm going to spoil Casino Royale also. So, um, uh, but he uh, he uh, has uh, lost the poker game and Vesper has told him that she's not going to buy him in again, which they're allowed to do, but that she has decided that he's too reckless and that they're going to cut their losses. And he has basically tried to convince her and failed to um, get a, a rebuy into the game because he thinks he can beat Lashif and she doesn't, basically. And um, Bond basically decides that he has to, you know, finish finish things um, here and now before Lashif can, you know, take the money to finance international terrorism and he grabs a, a, like a steak knife off one of the tables in the restaurant. Um, and, um, but just before that, he, um, he basically, uh, he uh, uh, orders a vodka martini from a waiter and the waiter says, shaken or stirred, sir. And Bond says, do I look like I give a damn? And um, it's a great line because, of course, it's a sort of commentary on the idea of, you know, the shaken, not stirred concept, the idea that, you know, James Bond can tell the difference between a vodka martini that has been prepared shaken versus a vodka martini that has been prepared stirred because his, you know, tastes are so refined. Um, but that it's kind of a really clever way to suggest for that kind of particular character to have used the the existing knowledge of James Bond to um, comment on the kind of level of, of distress that he's feeling in that scene. And then he basically, you know, grabs the steak knife and he is basically going to go try to assassinate Le Chief and um, Felix, Felix Leiter, his sort of American counterpart, um, who's played by Jeffrey Wright in um, Casino Royale and the, the Daniel Craig Bonds, um, sort of grabs him and stops him and uh, offers to buy him in that that Felix will basically fund the whatever it is. Uh, I don't even remember how much money it is uh, for the maybe like $5 million or something for a, a new buy-in to the poker game after Vesper decides not to. And um, 
he bond comes back to to continue playing the poker game basically and um that sort of continues the story and of course goes on to to win the game and and take all of the sheep's money and all that sort of stuff and anyway it's a, it's a great sequence in the film that i think really benefits from the existence of um the sort of previous sort of mythology of James Bond that exists in the other movies. And that's one of the reasons that I really like Casino Royale in particular, because I think that the the script was written with a lot of awareness and and reverence for and 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 concern for those kind of original James Bond stories, but not just in a kind of paying homage to the old classics, but also in a way that kind of creates something new and excellent out of that material as well, as opposed to, for instance, I'm going to perhaps annoy some people, but I felt like, for instance, Rogue One is, in my opinion, probably the best of the various Disney Star Wars movies, but I think it's basically kind of just homage in a lot of ways that it, it essentially doesn't kind of justify its own existence, if that makes sense, that it kind of exists to remind us of how much we love a lot of those characters that we love because of other Star Wars movies, whereas kind of, as opposed to something like Casino Royale that, um, you know, kind of exists to tell a story about Bond and, and Vesper and Le Chief and also uses the other material, essentially. So that was a very long discussion of James Bond, but um, I don't know. Jason will probably appreciate it. Who knows if anybody else will. But uh, yeah, I like James Bond stuff, so I uh, want to talk about it. I'm looking forward to your Tiny Spies review, though, because it's been a while. I, I bought a number of the Tiny games, and I'd have to go back. But don't they all use relatively small dice pools that you need a five or six on a D6 to succeed? That's what's stuck in my mind, and, and it, I didn't like it. Maybe I'm thinking of a different game. I know something turned me off. They were too light or the mechanic was like rolling 3D6 and you needed five or six to pass or something like that. I don't know. I, I need to go back and I may be, you know, misremembering and missing, you know, putting the wrong system with the wrong games. I knew there was something, but I'd have to go back and look. And I'm curious to see how the system's evolved. So I definitely look forward to your review of that. Yeah. So Tiny Spies. Um... I, uh, by the time this episode goes out, I think that uh, review will be out um, or that overview will be out and I will talk a little bit about that. I um, enjoyed the the game a lot, although my kind of perspective on it is sort of from the uh, position of especially um, using that game for sort of family game night with my uh, family and that... Uh, Duh, family game night with the family. Um, but that, and that I would, um, therefore, it would really benefit from having a uh, relatively simple game that, you know, only uses a couple of D6s and has a very simple character sheet and all of that sort of stuff as a way to kind of help them sort of get into the, the game because they're not um, super. Uh, intense role players or or super kind of mechanically minded the way that a number of my kind of you know the the friends 
who I, that I've made who are sort of more intensely into role playing are sort of more interested in that, um, in often kind of more, more mechanically intense games and all that sort of stuff. So, um, it is definitely a, a, a quite simple system. Normally you roll two D six and you're trying to get a five or six. And then if you have basically advantage, you roll three D six and disadvantage, you roll one D six and you have advantage or disadvantage based on kind of situational circumstances. So your character will have certain kind of skills or traits that give them advantage in particular situations or for particular tasks. And then there'll also be, you know, disadvantage sort of stuff that you might, you know, have to, you know, take a do something in a, in a situation where you're not as suited for it. And therefore we'll be rolling one D six. I'm, I'm tempted if I was going to run it, I would be tempted to add some sort of like a, a narrative meta currency kind of stress system that would be some version of like, you know, spend one currency to add one die and you can only do it once per roll, but you would have, you know, three to five in here and use them a little bit like kind of fate points where part of the idea is you can kind of get more for doing things that sort of cause your character trouble, right? For um, basically kind of engaging with the various kind of um, uh, complications of the game, right? So if you're playing a sort of suave super spy type who has a thing for beautiful women, like most of them seem to, and you, uh, you know, choose to uh, get sort of wrapped up in something related to that, that you would uh, get an extra point like this, and that you could use that on, you could only use one on a roll, but you could use it on any roll to add an extra die, and it would boost your maximum to four dice if you had advantage. So you'd have, you know, pretty great odds of succeeding, if you have advantage and use it, but even if you were had disadvantage, you could basically spend one of those points and be at kind of normal odds of success. And that that would add also a little bit more kind of control over the, the game. Um, that's sort of an idea I had when I was reading through it and thinking about playing it with my family is that to have, you know, basically three to five, you know, kind of, a, a you know, poker chips basically is probably what we would use. Um, in in person and that you just you know turn one in and get an extra die on any given roll to kind of basically to represent kind of you know pushing yourself or or um whatever else to kind of make something important happen because i i like that element of a lot of games the idea that there's a sort of um you know the player can kind of you know have a little more sort of direct control over the character's um, kind of attempt, I guess, the idea, especially of kind of, you know, especially rationalizing it as sort of pushing yourself that we all sort of know what it's like to be in a, in a situation where there's kind of important and unimportant things. And so we're, you know, devoting our, our energy and our willpower to uh, the important things and letting the unimportant things slide a little bit. And that, that is a, a thing that I think uh, fits a lot of the sort of fiction of these RPGs really well. And so I like the idea of, you know, the player decides, okay, you know, um, I, I, you know, really desperately need to make this particular shot. So I'm going to, you know, spend an extra point, get a little bit better odds to do so. And um, 
do it basically make, make that one happen. Whereas some of the other stuff that's happening around me, I don't necessarily care about as much. So I'm not going to spend the points on that. So I like that element of, of games often. So I might add that to tiny spies as a way to add just a little bit more kind of mechanical complexity and a little more um, sort of to engage with for the game. But I guess it'll depend on actually playing it with my family. So anyway, Hey, Arlen, thank you so much for sharing everything you have about your family and your situation. You know, it's very interesting and it's very endearing. And I, you know, I really appreciate your, your doing that. I look forward to playing a game with you here in the future and talking to you just, you know, just talking here in the future as well. So take care of yourself and we will talk again soon, I hope. Yeah, excellent. So that is sort of the last of Jason's calls in Dispatch. So, um, of course, I really I really enjoyed talking a little bit about my um, kind of family situation. And I, I feel like it was good. It's one of those things, you know, different, different people have kind of a different uh, perspective on things. And I am one of those people that is kind of not necessarily as dependent on talking through things to kind of compose my own thoughts. It feels like sometimes I know there are some people who that's right. That that's like basically how they kind of compose their thoughts is that they talk and that that kind of allows them to kind of organize their ideas and stuff. And I'm, I'm not someone who is kind of as dependent on that, I think, but it, that's not to say that it doesn't help me at times. And so I think it was good to talk through a lot of that stuff and it's, you know, things that are important to me and I want to share stuff that is kind of going on in my life and important to me and all that on the podcast as much as anything, because I feel like it's, you know, good for me to share that sort of stuff. But also, of course, it's, you know, nice to chat with you guys about that sort of stuff. So yeah, it was good. I, I have not started the Chaucer book yet. I have got uh, kind of a couple of other things sort of on the on the docket as it were for reading um in particular on on saturday um my little sister and her boyfriend and i went to one of the the bookstores in town where i had put in uh, an online order for a couple of books and i basically picked up the the two books of mine that they had um, I've got two more coming to that store, and then I've got, I think, like $5 more on the, the gift card that I used to pay for all of that that was a, a, a Christmas gift from uh, my grandparents. So basically, I have uh, a couple more new-to-me books. In, in, the case, in this case, it's both books that I've actually already read as digital copies, but I wanted to get as kind of physical books if nothing else, to just kind of have on the shelf and accessible. Um, although I think I'm going to read both of them as physical books this time um, instead of as digital books like I did last time, even though I, I often read digital. But um, in this case, both of these books are pretty short, so I think it'll be... I think it's one of those things that I like to read kind of longer books as digital, especially because I um, don't... Right. I just get, you know, like my arms get tired carrying a big book up uh, and holding it and reading from it for a long time and things like that. So I 
I feel like it's way more convenient to read on the Kindle in situations like that. But um, for short books like these, both of these, I think the, the long one is some kind of 250 pages and the short one is like 150. So more like a novella in the case of, of that one. But um, both things that I've read before and that I would like to read again and that I really enjoyed the last time I read them. So I think I will read. I'm going to finish the uh, Kate Stevenson um how to slay a dragon or whatever it's called book that is not great in my opinion but it's okay clearly there's there's definitely a lot of knowledge there it's just kind of there's some issues that i have with it especially on the front of kind of presentations so i don't know i may end up talking more about that particular book um in in the future do kind of like a, a brief sort of review type thing on the podcast or something i don't know um but then i want to read the the new books and then i at some point would definitely like to read that uh that chaucer book that was my grandfather's back in 1979 and uh get into that so anyway um and yeah i, I really look forward to getting to play with you and, and chat with you again soon jason um we haven't been able to to make that happen as much recently, but I think we're going to make that happen a couple times this week, it looks like, maybe for um, PF2 on Wednesday for at least a little while, and then DCC on Saturday morning, and then maybe a recording session of the, the secret project on uh, Saturday evening and whatever else we end up doing. And anyway, I think it'll be good. So um, yeah, that is the end of the sort of first round of call-ins. Um, so we are going to shift to me rambling content. And then if there are more call-ins that get added to this episode, I'm going to put those after the kind of me rambling content. And um, we'll see how long the episode goes and if I feel like I need to break it up or anything like that. Obviously, I went very long, especially with my discussion of uh, James Bond related stuff. That's like 17 minutes in the middle of the call-ins. So I could probably re-record it and have it be more concise, but I don't feel like doing that. So anyway, let's get into rambles. Hey, Arlen, Jason here. Just paused your YouTube to podcast episode. Um, 3.16 to comment. I, I definitely know what you mean with the YouTube videos. And, and yeah, you're right. Most publishers don't care because people aren't going to, you know, try to recreate the text off a page from somebody flipping through. But, you know, one instance that I do think it's kind of egregious, Bruce Tim, I think it's Bruce Tim. I'm, I'm not looking things up on the computer, so this is off the top of my head. But, you know, the guy behind the Batman animated show in DC Animated universe he also does some more adult art you know with nudity and stuff in it, it but the same style as the batman stuff and he, and he has some books out there that are pretty rare they're pretty hard to get and there are some youtube channels that have like reviews of those books where they flip through and pretty much show you all the pictures and i'm not necessarily complaining about nudity on youtube but the idea that you know you have this book that's a limited print run book you can't buy the book anymore. It's not available in Kindle. So if you normally, if you want to own this thing, you know, you're going to pay hundreds of dollars to get a copy of it. But, you know, somebody's showing it all online, which I guess you could look at it both ways. But, you know, for him, for that, it, which I guess since the book's not being sold anymore, 
maybe it's not as big an issue. But if he was selling the book, say it's a hundred dollars pop, and instead of buying the book, you just go to YouTube and look at somebody else's pictures of it. I, I mean, obviously, there's a big difference in owning the book and be able to look at it when you want, and regardless of the kind of art it is, right? But yeah, I, I definitely that that was one of the videos that flipped through of one of his books, art books, bugged me more. You know, the idea of artistic. You know, did they have permission to do that in, in artistic rights? I, I guess what I'm saying is that was more egregious of not respecting, you, you know, the the IP of the book to me than any of the any of the RPG ones that I've seen. If that makes sense. A uh, school bus just came up. My dog's gonna start barking, so I'm gonna stop this recording and go listen to the rest of your episode. Yeah. So that um, thanks, Jason, for calling in. That's a sort of call in response to kind of my comments about um, shifting my kind of. Uh, plan and style for overviews where, um, for those of you who don't know, for uh, what I do generally for overviews nowadays is that I have OBS open doing um, display capture and I just have the PDF up and then I have a little, um, basically a kind of banner at the top and my webcam at the top. And that also kind of allows me to kind of cover up some stuff on the screen. And so for instance, if I want to sort of do anything kind of behind the scenes, I guess you might say, um, I can kind of do that more easily because of having some of the, the screen covered up basically. Like if I want to kind of flip through, um, flip between different PDFs rather than just through one PDF, that's a convenient way to do it without necessarily kind of showing everything. And I don't know why that's important to me necessarily, but it feels somehow kind of more professional to have uh, a little bit of that going on. And then it also, there's a nice um, way in which, of course, it means that, um, you know, basically any kind of, uh, you know, screen captures from my overview episodes will have, you know, a little bit of a uh, live from Pelham's Wasteland thing on the them visually. Um, which I think is not a bad thing necessarily. So, but yeah, I, I agree, Jason, that I, I do think that there's kind of an interesting, um, way in which obviously having, you know, images on YouTube are not the same as, you know, kind of having a, a real book in your hands, but there's definitely a kind of odd way that some stuff, some kind of intellectual property elements get. Uh, treated, I guess, is the way I would put it. And that's um, my, uh, that's basically a big part of why I am thinking about that. Um, the Bruce Tim stuff is really interesting because I, uh, of course, as uh, I have talked about a couple times on here, I'm a big fan of the various uh, sort of Bruce Tim uh, series. Um, the Batman, the animated series. And then I think there was a sort of sequel Batman series called like, I don't even remember further adventures of Batman or, and then, or something. And then there's the justice league stuff. And then he's gone on to do some other stuff. So I know he was involved in like the first two seasons of young justice, but I think he is now more involved with, well, I think he ended up being involved with, um, either Star Wars, the Clone Wars or Star Wars Rebels, the the new 3D animated versions, not the 2D um, Genevieve Tartakovsky animated uh, Star Wars Clone Wars series. Um, 
but anyway, um, I, I, I certainly really enjoy his, um, stuff, basically the, the material that he has kind of created in those universes. Um, and I did not really know about the other stuff. So that's interesting, but, um, and it is kind of a, an interesting thing with regard to, um, stuff that is, you know, out of print or, um, things like that, that there's a, a measure of kind of, I guess, from the, from the sort of perspective of, for lack of a better term, kind of, uh, like intellectual property uh, storage, I guess you might say, or, or I guess from the perspective of kind of not letting things be lost to time, for lack of a better term, um, which is something that, of course, I am sort of uh, cognizant of, partly because of my background in kind of the classical world stuff and the fact that we have lost so much of what, um, existed in that era just because of, you know, time basically that there's a, there's a measure of, or a part of me that's sort of like, you know what, it's, you know, not necessarily a good thing, but it at least helps to kind of keep the, the material alive and existing somewhere where, you know, if every copy of that book got, you know, burned up in a freak accident, well, at least there would be images on YouTube, I guess, but I don't know. It's kind of a complicated thing. And that doesn't certainly doesn't really apply to my content. Cause I basically do stuff on, on PDFs um, that are almost all still being sold by the publishers. There are a couple of PDFs, a number of PDFs that I have that are of things that are out of print or not being sold. Or for instance, I did a thing on the uh, Prince Valiant, the storytelling game recently that will go up on YouTube soon. And I didn't show off the PDF, but um, it's a, it's a gorgeous book. It has all of, all of, uh, kind of uh, art by Hal Foster from the original comics series. Um, but my understanding is that it was, you know, um, I think it was Nocturnal Media who had the license first. And then when they got acquired by Chaosium, Chaosium kind of did the whole thing um, basically right at the, the kind of um, last little bit of Greg Stafford's life. If, if for those who don't know, basically Greg Stafford, um, ended up kind of back at Chaosium and Chaosium in control of Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest and Pendragon kind of right there at the end, which is a really interesting phenomenon. All, I mean, Call of Cthulhu kind of the least so, but certainly uh, RuneQuest and, and the world of Glorantha and Pendragon and in this case, the Prince Valiant game being... Um, kind of Greg Stafford's creations in a lot of ways. And so it was, it's kind of a really interesting thing. And then of course he uh, is, is now no longer with us. It's been a, a couple of years, I think in October, it will be three years since he uh, has passed on. But anyway, um, the Prince Valiant game is a pretty simple system. Um, but uh, I think that it is, I think it has everything to do with um, licensing issues that Chaosium isn't selling new copies of it, that they, um, you can't buy not just not a print copy, but not even a PDF copy from anybody legally now. Um, and I think there are probably places where you could find a PDF online, um, but it's a, you know, 
it's a sort of unfortunate thing that like I can understand that whoever it is who actually, you know, owns the license now wants to make money off of it. But there's also a part of me that's like, you know, I don't necessarily somehow it's there's like a level of like, you know, not necessarily um, legally acceptable, but kind of morally more acceptable to to pirate something that you can't otherwise get almost as a, a measure of sort of keeping the material in the, the public sphere, I guess, or something. I don't know entirely. But anyway, all of that is just to say. And and the other thing, and something that I have been cognizant of too, is especially with regard to art and RPG art, um, that I am not someone who kind of cares nearly as much about art as I think a lot of other people in the kind of RPG sphere do. That art and uh, to a lesser degree layout, the kind of visual side of how a book looks just doesn't concern me nearly as much, um, which I think has a number of reasons for it, partly because I have read so many kind of academic PDFs in my um, time in, in uh, academia and then afterwards also that I am used to, you know, tiny font in columns with no art at all that is super dense and just being like, okay, I got to read it. Um, so it doesn't really bother me when um, RPGs are, you know, at least not that bad. Um, but then also I'm just not necessarily a uh, hugely visual person in a lot of ways, I think um, uh, that I don't kind of think in that way, if that makes sense, but that um like when I read, I don't really imagine images basically at all. I, I sort of, it's a little bit like the way that I dream in the sense that there's a kind of strange sort of, I guess, uh, a, a sort of uh, literary quality, I might say, where it's almost like there are sort of words and meanings, but not necessarily images. Like I don't, and I don't like picture people's faces basically at all. Um, and stuff like that. So anyway, all of that is to say that I am, I think because of that, trying to be really cognizant of the fact that, you know, um, despite the fact that I may not be as concerned about art in general, although I have definitely commented on art in overviews before, um, that, um, you know, other people are definitely often kind of concerned about art and art is one of the um, kind of big costs with regard to producing a kind of professional looking RPG book often. And so I want to be kind of cognizant of that and not just, you know, show off every single piece of art in a book to be like, Hey, here's, here's all of it. Um, and thereby somehow kind of, uh, not kind of respect almost the kind of investment of, of, uh, money and even more so kind of time and energy that went into the, the production of all of that. Um, so anyway, all of that is to say that I, I think the new system is working pretty well. It um, involves a little more prep, but that's, I think, a good thing that I, I do a little more prep to kind of plan out what I want to say more than just kind of flipping through and commenting um, almost at random. So and I like I said, I think that's a good thing. I think that helps with the kind of overall um, overview. Um, so I think it's working really well. But yeah, it's kind of a weird, a weird thing, you know, using people's intellectual 
property or, or copyright material or stuff. And then on the other hand, there's also an element of, you know, like for instance, I, uh, it was actually just yesterday that we recorded it, but I did a, a sort of discussion with um, J.M. Defoggy, um of Jackal's fame and that audio will go up on the podcast at some point. I don't know exactly when I'm going to fit it in, but it'll definitely be available on the podcast. Um, and it was a really good discussion about a lot of things kind of centered on Glorantha, although not just about the world of Glorantha. Um, and I put up some kind of art from various uh, editions of Glorantha that I had sort of curated, um, which is, you know, on the one hand, I definitely like don't own that art, but also like I am kind of talking about material that it seems like Chaosium, who does own all of the art that I used, at least as far as I know, um, would be interested in kind of, you know, making sure that people are learning about Glorantha. And so they might be, you know, okay with a little bit of sort of kind of an edge case scenario almost. So I don't know, it's kind of a complicated thing. And I am, you know, I don't have a background in like intellectual property law or anything like that or copyright law or any of that. So I'm just going to kind of keep doing what I'm doing and try to be kind of cognizant of um, all of the different things. And I guess if I get feedback, especially from like a, a publisher or a designer about uh, my stuff that I will try to kind of, you know, do a, do a good job of being respectful of that. And I think that's, you know, kind of the best you can do in most circumstances. I will also add as a kind of little bit more on the subject. So I've been kind of looking through um, just for the past, you know, couple of minutes, basically 15, 20 minutes, um, some Bruce Tim art and some kind of art in the uh, style of Bruce Tim um, on just on, uh, on, um, Google image search basically, and have been enjoying a lot of that stuff in particular. There's some really cool things that he has, uh, drawn or been involved in. Um, there's a couple of like, there's one that is a sort of Batman in specifically the kind of original style where the the cowl and all of that looks a lot more a lot closer to the kind of first version of Batman I guess you could say where the kind of ears sort of come out a little sideways and almost like horns um, and then there's some Star Wars sketches that are pretty cool there's you know a Luke Skywalker and uh, uh, Han Solo um, stuff and then there's a couple of, in particular, just kind of searching through here, there's some, um, I think it is, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know if the text is by him, but there's a particular image that I'm looking at right now that is sort of about his uh, style and his kind of uh, design um, elements, you might say. And he um, is specifically talking, so there's kind of two elements to this image. There's you blockhead and don't keep it real. And he's talking about the um, structure, the, the kind of shapes that are involved in Batman and the Joker's face. And then he's got a version of the Joker basically with Batman's jawline and a version of Batman with Joker's jawline. And it's a great demonstration of the 
the role of those shapes in kind of communicating um, information in a sort of cartoon style, essentially. Um, and um, then he's got a, the, the other section is called Don't Keep It Real. And Don't Keep It Real is basically a um, kind of high quality line and ink um, and, and shading drawing of a realistic Batman um, head and cowl. And then the kind of simplified animated version. And what he's showing is the way that the animated version um, of that does not look very good, that it looks kind of too simple and there's not a lot of detail and that a lot of the kind of quality of the um, original comes from the sort of, you know, shading and the line work that is difficult to reproduce for animation because of the kind of intense amount of work that it would take to do that. And then he's got kind of the the uh, design of the Batman face that is, you know, blocky and kind of stylized and showing how, you know, that's both kind of easily reproducible quickly for an animated show and also is, you know, looks good um, as sort of stylized. And so that's pretty cool. And then the last thing that I will comment on is a particular image that um, is basically Batman kind of uh, crashing through a window, uh, choking the Joker as the Joker is shooting him in the chest, basically, with a, a pistol. And then there's a bunch of kind of other little bits and pieces in there that are um, implying um, different kind of issues that have to do with um, the kind of things that the Batman show had to go through based on... Um, the kind of broadcast standards and stuff that, you know, they couldn't show Batman strangling people. And there's a, a, a syringe that's, you know, like a, somebody potentially would have been, you know, using to shoot up with heroin and Catwoman has a cigarette falling out of her mouth and there's a alcohol bottle or is clearly supposed to be alcohol. It's just got XXX on the label and then there's a cross and there's a kid in the scene who looks like, you know, he might be in sort of the line of gunfire on some level. And anyway, the point being that there's a whole um, kind of set of things apparently that they ran into when trying to adapt Batman the Animated Series. And it's a great kind of visual uh, version of those issues. Um, and so I let me see if I can link it maybe in the description. Um, well, we'll see. Anyway, but I, I thought I would just talk about that just a little bit more because I thought that was kind of a fun little discovery. And um, I, you know, I really enjoy those Bruce Tim animated series. So yeah, including Batman Beyond, which I did not mention, but is a, a great show, I think, and, and um, a great show. And then the, the Return of the Joker movie, I think is a really excellent um, Batman animated movie that has some really great bits and pieces in it um, also, and it's totally worth watching. There's, there's kind of, my understanding is there's two versions of that. There's kind of like a, a theatrical version and a director's cut maybe. And I think that the distinction has to do with um, rating stuff that the director's cut did not go through the whole kind of rating process. Um, and that it was, it's because there's some kind of, uh, not even necessarily like gory violent, but especially some kind of uh, 
pretty grim sort of implied uh, violence and um, some, some kind of creepy stuff going on that I think the story is that they decided that it needed to, you know, happen in a kind of less grim and um, sort of off screen way for the, the presumably PG rating of the theatrical version, um, if I remember correctly. But anyway, um, and now we have more calls from Jason. Okay, I am out driving, but I am pretty much hands-free, as far as you know. And I wanted to call in. I finished listening to your Adventure Crafter part. I'm going to jump to Tiny D6 Spies next, which I'm very curious about. I think I called you or commented about my issues with the the Tiny system in the past, or at least my perceived issues, so we'll see if they're still applied to this. But the Adventure Crafter. Very cool. I've got a bunch. I've got Mythic, and I've, I've got a bunch of that stuff. I don't know if I have this product or not, to be honest. When I get home, I'll have to look through my drive-through RPG library. I might already have it. If not, I'll definitely pick it up, mainly for the reason you're talking about using it for solo. My favorite solo podcast is James Thrall's Subclass Act, and he is able to just come up with stuff on the fly and, you, you know, j- jump to different places, and I can't do that. I definitely get stuck. So having something like this that would help out for solo play for me would be hugely helpful Uh, for actual play where I'm a, you know, GM with players. I don't know how much I would use it, but definitely like just solo for me and needing to come up with an idea when I hit a, you know, a, a plot point or hit a decision point in the game. I think this would be huge. So thank you for reviewing it. I really appreciate it. Maybe you reminded me about a product I already have, or maybe I'll go spend 10 bucks on it. We'll see. Okay. Let me go listen to your tiny D6 spies review. All right. The Adventure Crafter. Yeah. The Adventure Crafter is a really interesting um, product. It's something that I have kind of always, basically every time I kind of open it up and use it, I feel like there's a ton of stuff there. Um, and then I will kind of, you know, forget about it, put it back on the shelf, not open it for a while and kind of not engage with it as much. But I, I do feel like it's a really excellent product. And that in particular, it's one of those things where um, there's kind of uh, two levels to a lot of random tables, if that makes sense. And sort of the one, as I see it, the one level is the just sort of breadth, which is to say having kind of a bunch of material on the table. But then the other level is the sort of subtler side, which has to do with kind of distribution and things like that, right? Like I'm sure everybody has encountered like a uh, a random table where, for instance, it's like a 2D6 or 3D6 table and the distribution is just a little odd that you end up, you know, with a lot more of, of certain results that don't necessarily seem like they, you know, should be more common than the other results, if that makes sense. So it's it's one of those things. And I think that um, really well-designed random tables often is, is because they kind of combine both of those, that there's a, a lot of thought that has gone in, not just to kind of having enough material, but also to the kind of distribution and the idea of especially kind of um, storytelling or kind of information um, 
giving through distribution. So like, that's one of the things that I really like about certain um, random encounter tables is that, you know, a, a 2d6 or a 3d6 random encounter table can kind of tell you a lot about what's like the most common stuff in like a particular region or something, right? That if it's, you know, a 3d6 table and the 9, 10, 11, 12 options are, you know, 1d6 goblins, well, that's, you know, a lot of your random encounters are just going to be the 1d6 goblins. And that, that, you know, I think there's a real way that kind of over time in play, if you're playing like a long kind of sandboxy campaign, that the players, you know, start to have a, a sort of sense of that um, that element rather than kind of having to have it like specifically explained to them, right? That like if you have one region, it's 1d6 goblins and the other, then it's a kind of further afield region, it's like, you know, one orc plus 2d6 goblins or one hobgoblin plus 2d6 goblins right they'll start to realize oh there's this sort of you know we get further away from civilization and there's sort of this more dangerous area where the the random encounters are quite a bit uh, tougher right that that's a whole kind of thing um i think that's a cool way to kind of sort of imply kind of setting and, and story and all that sort of stuff without necessarily kind of coming out and saying it all if that makes sense. Um, and all that is to say that I think the adventure crafter and um, mythic, um, one of the things that I really appreciate about them is that I think there's a lot of awareness of that, that it's not just a whole lot of material, but there's also an attempt to kind of um, structure and distribute the material in a way that works for um telling the sort of story certainly that I like to tell that the adventure crafter will have, you know, certain events are on, it's a D 100 role, but you know, certain events have, you know, two or even three um, spots on the table and some of them only have one. And so it's like, okay, well then that means that, you know, this kind of, you know, more generic and more common event is going to happen a fair bit more than this other type of event. And I think there's some, some really cool stuff on that front present in uh basically all of the word mill games uh stuff but the, um, the adventure crafter certainly is that and yeah i really like using it um i also like using it um as a way to not just um kind of generate stuff but also to sort of keep myself honest if that makes sense with solo play that um it's i feel like a good way to kind of come up with material where I'm not worried about kind of, am I being, you know, too beneficial to my character or not beneficial enough or anything like that. That, um, cause I feel like in solo play, when you don't have like a, a, a group or a GM that you're accountable to, it can kind of be easy to not necessarily cheat, but just sort of kind of, you know, fudge it a little bit almost. And that having a resource like the adventure crafter that kind of exists outside of my head is a good way to say, okay, I'm going to roll and not fudge the dice on the roll. And that'll just, you know, that's that way it's sort of out of my hands on some level, even though it's, it's not entirely out of my hands because I'm choosing to use that particular resource. So there's a sort of um, distributed uh, agency, you might say.
But anyway, yeah, I think it's a really good product. I would totally recommend getting yourself a copy. And like I think I said in the overview, I'm pretty sure I got my physical copy from Amazon for pretty cheap. So if you're interested in a, a physical version, you can totally um, pick that up. And I assume it's a, a print on demand through Amazon's version of that. But anyway, all of that is to say that it's, yeah, I think it's a really good product that is totally worth checking out. I've already left messages about my thoughts on the James Bond movies, so I won't repeat those again. But other than to reaffirm that Sean Connery is James Bond, your father has good taste. But as far as the novels go, I don't think it's worth your time to try to read the Fleming novels. They're definitely a product of their time. They're, they're travel logs to some degree, but they're also, you, you know, there's there's definitely language in there and and stereotypes in there and colonialism kind of things in there that, that, that you know, I doubt aged very well, to be honest. Um, there are a number of other authors that wrote James Bond, I, and I haven't read all of them. Really, the only one I read extensively was John Gardner, and I remember those novels be pretty good. So the James Gardner, James Bond novels might be worth picking up, but honestly, you're probably better off just sticking with the movies. So I had a sort of uh, moment of shock here when uh, Jason mentioned John Gardner. It turns out a different John Gardner than the one I have been uh, talking about with the Chaucer biography. Um, that John Gardner was an American, and he wrote a number of things, including um, Grendel is one of those books that I really love um, and have really uh, enjoyed over the years since reading it for the first time as a freshman in high school and then having come back to it a couple times now. Um, that's been really cool. Um, the, the John Gardner that wrote James Bond novels is an English guy, and he um, wrote a number of things, including uh, a number of uh, novels using Ian Fleming's James Bond. So, yeah, I um, what I I think I mentioned that the only one that I've read at present is um, Casino Royale, and I didn't I didn't not enjoy it by any means. Although it was interesting the way that the the movie Casino Royale kind of adds a lot to, or the 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 movie the Daniel Craig. Casino Royale kind of adds a lot to the story that isn't in the original book. Um, in particular, a lot of the kind of uh, later stuff in the story kind of after the poker game is pretty heavily expanded upon. Um, and also Le Chief originally is just a, a French communist and they're worried about, you know, the Soviets having uh, uh they're putting their hooks into Western Europe, essentially. And so James Bond has to get rid of the commies instead of, uh, obviously, in the uh, Daniel Craig James Bond, it's not necessarily directly stated, I don't think, but it's pretty heavily implied that Le Chief, um was a, a major source of funding for um, a number of terrorist attacks, including September 11th. Um, which is a little weird to think about kind of that seems a little too kind of on the nose in some ways, but uh, looking back on it, but I, it doesn't necessarily bother me too much now. Um, anyway, and so, uh, you know, James Bond is stopping, you know, international terrorism um, and by, by cutting off its funding, um, which is a, obviously a whole thing. That's actually for anybody who doesn't know, that's kind of one of the, the, 
the majority of the actual text of the Patriot Act, the kind of famous and, and controversial piece of American legislation in response to September 11th, uh, the September 11th attacks, um, a lot of it actually has to do not with the kind of lion's share. The text actually has to do not with the kind of controversial bits that are talked about a lot about kind of, you know, things like um, surveillance and, and, you know, all of that sort of, you know, stuff, but that uh, the lion's share of the text actually has to do with basically uh, banking regulations and trying to make it more difficult for um, various nefarious organizations to uh, launder money and move money around and all of that sort of stuff, which is something kind of interesting. When I learned that, I was sort of like, huh, that's kind of because they're, you know, just in the popular consciousness, there's not a lot of talk about that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I remember, I don't remember a whole lot of particularly kind of repugnant stuff in Casino Royale, although I do remember there's kind of a, there's definitely, I mean, I think it's fair to say that there is a, um, a, a fair bit of uh, misogyny present in a number of the versions of James Bond. Um, and um, certainly in Casino Royale, there's definitely, uh, James Bond is, is more than a little manipulative of Vesper Lynn to get into her pants, basically, um, in a way that I think in the movie version, there's kind of a, a sort of a, almost an element of subversion of that, the way that they kind of, especially Eva Green being so wonderful, uh, played alongside Daniel Craig, that they kind of play off each other in some clever ways that sort of doesn't entirely get rid of some of the sort of more iffy moments in Casino Royale, but it seems like the more kind of iffy moments in Casino Royale are um, more aware and more of kind of like a commentary on the nature of James Bond than they are meant to be, you know, enjoy the vicariously, the, uh, the, the conquests of our hero type thing. But anyway, so I don't know if I'm going to go back and read, obviously they're, they're not hard reads by any means, you know, you can pretty easily read one of Ian Fleming's novels in an afternoon, um, or at least I can. Um, but, um, I have enjoyed some other, sort of related stuff. There's a, I can't remember the name of the particular author, but there's a, a series that I read two or three from that um, was sort of a, a blend of a number of things, but it, there's definitely a, a pretty strong influence from the kind of travelogue, espionage, James Bond element. Um, but the main character is like a I don't remember if he's like an archaeology professor or what exactly, because um, it's been a while since I read him and they were okay. They weren't great necessarily, but they were kind of fun. Um, but that it's, there's a, a kind of measure of, of sort of subversion of the James Bond type there that uh, he, he is sort of a, a wimpy professor type and his best buddy is sort of a, a kind of uh, police officer, but kind of in the in the sort of thuggish mold, who doesn't really care about a lot of the the finer stuff. And together they end up uh, solving problems, especially related to kind of art crime, which turns out art crime is often very closely related to um, attempts to launder money by nefarious organizations, which is a whole other interesting thing. Um, but that I, I enjoyed that series more than a little bit. Um, 
for the, the first couple of them that I read. I can't remember the name of it now, so maybe I'll go back and find it. Who knows? But yeah, the anyway, James Bond novels, I, I don't know if I'm going to read any more of them, although I might end up going back and picking up one or two just as a, you know, read it in an afternoon and kind of, you know, think about it. Especially, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see a little more of how, especially the early ones were adapted, essentially, the kind of relationship between, I guess, the, the, the sort of Ian Fleming um, novel and the, the, the film version, especially the ones with Sean Connery, because they're kind of closer to the source material temporally. And yes, I think, I think Sean Connery is a, a wonderful James Bond. And to me, he's sort of the, the kind of, um, Er James Bond almost that Daniel Craig is kind of like a, a James Bond that exists as commentary on Sean Connery, James Bond in a way that I think I've talked about um, a bit over the course of several episodes, but yeah. Um, anyway, so that's kind of what I have to say about James Bond novels. I, I'm probably making a big assumption here, but you've probably read this Charles Strauss, you know, the laundry novels. Um, and in the laundry novels, there's one novel that effectively is a kind of a send up of James Bond and that whole genre. That's kind of interesting, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, let, let me get to the RPG review. Cause that's the interesting part. There, there are a bunch of, you, you know, different espionage RPGs. A lot of them out of print. The James Bond RPG by Victory Games is actually pretty good. The... Top Secret, the original Top Secret's kind of clunky. I don't remember Top Secret SI that much. I had it, but I never you know, really played it. I have not looked at Top Secret New World Order. I actually bought it, but I don't have it. I haven't read it, so I can't comment on that. Spycraft gets high remarks by some people. I have not played Spycraft, so I can't comment on that. Of course, Playdom did Ninja Spies. So. Since I had James Bond back in the day, it's kind of interesting. The games we played the most were Top Secret, the original 1980, and Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, which is an evolution of the Tunnels and Trolls system. Um, but, yeah. I don't know. J- James Bond is a pretty good system. But, but again, it's out of print, and it's an IP kind of product, so you know I'm sure they go for stupid money nowadays. But, oh well. Let, let me get your review. Although you've already verified the dive mechanic is the, the one I wasn't thrilled with, but let, let me hear your actual view of the game. Sorry for all these regressions. I look forward to hearing how the game went for your family. And yeah, it, you know, it's weird because the tiny D6 just feels like too light of a system for me. And also for dice pool with only a 33% chance I'm not real thrilled with any rolling, you know, one, two, or three dice, per se. But it's weird for me to say a system feels too light when I championed Rysus, you know what I mean? But I don't know. You're going to have to run a tiny D6 game for me sometime of your choice and sell me on the system. I I definitely look forward to giving a shot. So thank you for the reviews. Really appreciate it. And I will talk to you again soon. Yeah, so... um... Thanks, Jason, so much for all of your call-ins across this whole episode. Um, For those of you who um, 
can't tell, I guess. Um, they're sort of in uh, multiple kind of waves, essentially, and were responded to in multiple waves in the sense that I got these call-ins kind of at different times, um, depending on what was what I had put out and what Jason was listening to. Um, so anyway, big thanks to Jason for all of his call-ins. Um, as far as the games you listed, so I, I have never played and I don't have a copy of the Victory Games James Bond. I've never played Top Secret. Um, I have the second edition of Spycraft, which I thought was interesting, although I kind of think of it as a little more oriented towards kind of action stuff, um, which is to say that... Um, more in lines of some of the kind of uh, other things. And, and particularly, this is kind of an interesting thing with um, James Bond, because I, I think I talked uh, a little bit about this, but that in some of those earlier, especially the earlier James Bond ones in a couple of, a couple of places, and then also um, in some of the, I think of as sort of the better James Bond, there's not... Uh, necessarily a ton of action or there are kind of long periods of kind of tension before a relatively short period of action happens if that makes sense which is something that i certainly enjoy in, in a lot of the stories that i like and certainly it's a, it's a common thing in movies you know quentin tarantino for instance loves his you know moments before violence sequences that so many of his movies are built on that kind of, you know, bullets are about to start flying, but they haven't quite started yet. And everybody is, you know, the, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, good, the bad and the ugly, you know, eyes, narrowed eyes looking between the other guys, wondering who's going to draw first type thing. Um, that's so good. Um, anyway, and all of that is just to say that, um, one of the things that I think is kind of the nature of sort of James Bond-ness is that James Bond has a kind of remarkable capacity for violence, but that he's really not like a, a super soldier, right? He's not Captain America and he's not, um, you know, uh, the, the, you know, doom guy protagonist just kind of mowing through hordes of enemies, at least at his best. A part of the point is that James Bond can kind of go places that characters like that can't and can, you know, kind of be a part of a sort of suave, you know, nonviolent area. And then when he needs to be violent, he can, you know, kill the bad guy and all that sort of stuff, you know, pull out his Walter PPK and take the shot type thing. But that, you know, especially in, in a number of those movies, he doesn't actually kind of, you know, and I think that's partly speaks to my um, disappointment with um, no time to die in particular, which, um, no Time to Die, for those of you who don't know, is at present the most recent James Bond movie, and it had kind of a, a complicated release schedule based on pandemic-related stuff and shooting issues and all that. And um, I watched it with my parents on, um, you know, Prime Video On Demand or whatever they call it, you know, renting it from Amazon basically to stream it. Um, and it is a... Uh, 
not so good movie in a lot of ways, I think. And that in particular, I think one of the things that makes it not so good is that there are a lot of sequences where basically James Bond could be totally replaced by like an SAS team and they would do a better job of what he's trying to do and that you don't really need James Bond to, you know, carry an assault rifle and mow down hordes of bad guys. You need James Bond to, you know, get into the the poker room where you're not allowed to bring a gun and for him to win the poker game to, you know, allow the SAS team to to take out Le Chief after he leaves, basically. That sort of thing is kind of what you need James Bond for, is as I see it. Um, and that that's a whole kind of thing um and that is to say that i my sense of spycraft and also um the 5e the spy game which is another kind of related thing is that they're both leaning a little more towards kind of high action um to some degree not to say that you can play them in that sort of you know high tension intrigue sort of way but that um it seems to me that both the kind of you know uh sort of D20 chassis that Spycraft is built on and the 5e chassis that the spy game is built on lend themselves to given the players, you know, pretty wicked shit to do in combat to be badasses and that that is likely to mean that your players are going to, you know, feel more like they can, you know, initiate combat and just shoot the bad guys instead of trying to, you know, talk their way out of things and all that. And obviously that's to say, you know, it has a lot to do with, um, you know, the the style of the game you're trying to play and the, what the GM is doing and what the players are doing in the specific situation. But that my sense of those games is that they lend themselves a little more to that kind of, you know, uh, high action, um, you know, kind of chaotic firefights more than the kind of, you know, tension of kind of being in a situation where you really don't want to start shooting, but you're facing the enemy, especially. And that's kind of a classic concept in a lot of stories. You know, I think about in particular, um, is it Heat, where there's Robert De Niro and um, Al Pacino, who are, you know, on opposite sides of the law and have kind of a sit down conversation in like a diner or something. I can't even remember exactly what it is, but I think what it is is that they have kind of a, a sit down conversation in a diner where of course they don't want to, you know, start shooting and have, you know, a bunch of innocent bystanders get hurt because, um, you know, the criminal doesn't want to put that kind of heat on him and the, the cop doesn't want to, you know, get innocent bystanders hurt. Um, and so they kind of have this sort of enforced, uh, pet, um, uh, pacifist moment, essentially, where they, you know, have to kind of sit down and talk to each other instead of going guns blazing. And that's a really kind of cool concept, I think, that I, I would like to see uh, more often in RPGs, some version of kind of, you know, meeting the bad guy and not necessarily, you know, that's when we go guns blazing and shoot them, but a sort of, you know, it, it seems like that's more common in certain genres, um, but that that's kind of a cool, a really cool concept in a lot of ways that I'd kind of like to tie into. Um, but anyway, that's a, a whole kind of digression. Um, and then there were one or two others I was thinking of. I think Feng Shui got mentioned, Feng Shui 2 particularly got mentioned earlier in the episode, I'm pretty sure. And that has definitely a kind of super spy um, character archetype that you could play. Although Feng Shui 2 also is a little more oriented towards 
the kind of uh, over the top action elements, but you could definitely do it in more of a kind of, you know, intriguey spy sort of thing. You just don't have necessarily quite as much kind of rule structure for that. And I think you could probably do something interesting with some version of like gumshoe, maybe um, kind of like a, a sort of Knights Black Agents thing, I guess, maybe as the sort of basis and have it be the kind of, you know, investigative, but a lot of your investigative skills would be more related to kind of like, you know, verbal and, and kind of talky talky stuff. So it'd be less about, you know, oh, I know how to do this kind of forensics trick to, to get this information more about like, I know how to talk in a way that will get the bad guys to reveal clues and things like that. And that that might be really cool. Um, as a as a kind of core system to use and obviously gumshoe is built for you know very very capable player characters um and so that would sort of fit with the genre in a lot of ways that you know when the bullets start flying james bond is definitely able to shoot some bad guys um but he's you know often it seems to me that in in the best of the James Bond movies, James Bond is is less of a kind of, you know, walking tank super soldier and more of a kind of uh, clever attacker that he'll, you know, ambush people or do do have kind of clever ways to deal with the bad guys rather than just sort of, you know, walking out in the open and trusting that he's not going to get shot by a, a stray bullet or anything. Um, but the way that like, you know, Captain America can just, you know, walk around and he's got his shield. So he's, you know, protected. Um, anyway, all of that is just to say that, um, yeah, those are, those are some great game suggestions. I'm probably not going to try to pick up any of the, the games that you mentioned that are out of print in terms of trying to get a hold of copies myself. Cause I suspect like you said that they are very expensive at this point, but you know, anyway, all of that is, uh, yeah, fun stuff. And I uh, definitely I, I will reiterate that I really enjoyed having all these call ins to respond to Jason. And thank you so much for calling in so much. Um, and I think I'm just going to go ahead and kind of wrap the outro into this particular audio recording. So um, anyway, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. Like I said, it's been through kind of a couple of stages of development, essentially, and I have some kind of audio that I recorded of sort of my own stuff kind of rambling about like what's going on in my life and all of that, um, that I, um, am going to put into a different episode. And I am thinking about doing something a little bit like what my buddy Che Webster does, um, with the, uh, the DM diary, um, as his kind of sort of personal stuff where he basically kind of checks in, and, and has sort of, you know, every day or every couple of days, we'll do a, an audio message and um, we'll uh, record it and put it into kind of a full episode that is a, um, you know, a thing that uh, he releases on his Patreon now. He doesn't put them on the, the Anchor um, podcast anymore because it's, it's sort of a just for friends thing almost. But anyway, I think it's a cool idea and a good way to kind of share that sort of material that um, certainly I enjoy his version of that and other people seem to enjoy some of the stuff like that that I do. So I, it seems like it might be a good thing to do. So anyway, I've been sort of thinking about um, 
all of that. And uh, I guess I, I may end up doing that. It'll sort of depend on kind of stuff going on in my life and all that. But anyway, um, yeah, so um, anyway, I really hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. I know it is um, a very long that it's we're looking at, you know, over an hour and a half, which I've been trying to keep things a little shorter. But obviously, I did not do a great job. And there's, you know, a couple of long responses in this episode um, that kind of filled up time, as it were. Um, but I, I guess I kind of feel like it's better to do one hour and a half episode than like two back to back um, 45 minute episodes in some ways. Um, I don't know if that's how anybody else feels, but that's kind of how I feel. Um, I guess if you don't feel like that, you can call in and let me know. But um, otherwise, anyway, I really hope you guys have enjoyed. Huge thanks to Jason Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast for calling in so much and giving me so much to talk about. Um, if you are not listening to the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, you should be. And um, anyway, I hope everybody's doing well, staying safe, staying healthy, and having fun. I've been Erlen Walker. I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland. And I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.